Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's Hi, your host, thanks for joining Eric us for Moorhead. Part two of the Sentencing Commission Confidential Special Podcast, talking about the minimum requirements for an effective ethics and compliance program under the guidelines. If you haven't listened to part one already, we posted that up last week. Go back and maybe listen to that because I'm going to be kind of jumping right into the middle, talking about three of the remaining seven hallmarks. So you'll be four hallmarks short. You don't want to be four hallmarks short. short. Nobody wants to be four hallmarks short. But before we jump into that, I have a couple of things I want to mention. As always, as I've been mentioning for the last few weeks, we have a new webinar. It's going to be on October 4th. 2017. This is probably the last podcast that's going to be up before that one, before that date expires. So please, if you have any interest at all, if you're thinking about updating your code of conduct, don't know if you need to update your code of conduct, know you're going to be updating your code of conduct, please join us October 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central Time for a free webinar, The Road to a New Code of Conduct. Information on how to sign up for that free webinar will be in the show notes of this podcast, but it's also on our website's both compliancebeat.com and moreheadconsulting.com. Please join us for that. If you have any questions about it, as always, you can reach out to us if you want to know more about what the content's going to be, if you have uh, people that you might want to attend it. Additionally, we're coming up close. Fall time of the year means that uh, it's time for SCCE's Compliance and Ethics Institute. This year, it's going to be in Las Vegas. Uh, I should note that both uh, Compliance Beat and Moorhead Consulting are going to have a little booth. We're going to be at booth 700. For those of you who are going to be in Las Vegas, please come by and see us. Uh, Also, we'll be speaking at the CEI twice, once on Sunday, for those that get there early in the afternoon. And then more importantly for this podcast today, I am going to be doing a session on the organization sentencing guidelines, past, present, and future with the current general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, Kathleen Grilly. Even if uh, you're sick of hearing me talk about the sentencing guidelines, you need to come hear Kathleen talk about the guidelines. That's always an interesting, this is the second time we've done it. It's always an interesting discussion. So please join us if you are going to be there. So with all of that out of the way, I want to jump right back into where we were last week. We were talking about a kind of common set of questions. I think it's fair, fair to, fairer to say it's a set of questions and not one question. But it usually comes out something like, what are the minimum requirements? What are the bare minimum? That's the bad question. <laughs> what, what do I have to do just to get through this? Requirements under the sentencing guidelines for a compliance program. Or honestly, what do the seven hallmarks mean? The other thing I talked about a little bit last time, and, and I think it's worth mentioning, and I, I'm going to try to find the article and put a link to it in the show notes is Joe Murphy. And Joe is not the only one that's talked about this in the past, has talked about uh, how there's some confusion around what these seven hallmarks actually are. They get turned around a little bit and they get reinterpreted. One of the reasons they get reinterpreted is that when you're drafting the sentencing guidelines, and this comes from my experience actually having been there, you have to do things in a very precise way. Everything has to be defined 
And sometimes that doesn't lead to the most clear language for somebody who's just kind of jumping in here in the middle of the game, so to speak. Compliance officers, people in the compliance field, including lawyers in the compliance field, are not the primary consumer of sentencing guidelines. The primary consumer of sentencing guidelines are criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, probation officers, judges, and judges' staff. The guidelines apply not just to our companies and organizations when they get into trouble, but they apply to individuals when they are charged with a federal offense or convicted of a federal offense is more appropriate. The fact of the matter is that upwards of 70,000 individuals year in, year out are sentenced in federal courts in the United States. And on a busy year, you might have 250 to 300 companies or organizations that are sentenced. So there's a huge disproportionate focus, as you might expect, on organizational sentencing guidelines. And if you look at the sentencing guideline manual, I don't have one right in front of me right now, but it's several hundred pages. It's a thick book. And and the vast majority of the material in there has absolutely nothing to do with organizations. And even chapter eight, for most compliance officers, is not all that interesting or appealing except for the section 8B 2.1 that we were talking about, which is the section that talks about what an effective compliance and ethics program is. And it's helpfully titled Effective Compliance and Ethics Program. <laughs> Basically, this vast work, this hundreds of pages long, the, the, the focus primarily for most people is on a couple of pages. The problem is, <laughs> the problem has been in the past, although there's a lot of focus on this, even though it's only a couple of pages long, most people rely on interpretations of what it says, including listening to podcasts, (laughs) I would assume, rather than looking at it themselves. And I encourage you, I highly encourage you to go look at it yourself. And in the show notes, I I neglected to mention this last week, but in the show notes last week and in the show notes this week, I have a link for you to go and actually read 8B 2.1. And again, it doesn't take long. If you, you just set aside half an hour, you've never done it, you've been a compliance officer for a few years, or you're new to the job, Whatever the situation is, if you haven't actually sat down and read the darn thing, I encourage you to do so. Not only because I spent several hours of my time working on it back in 2010, but but also because I think it, it, it you know it's better to get it from the source. There's some nuance there that is occasionally skewed or lost or not interpreted accurately, including I'm sure by me. You know, I have my own interpretation on on things as as does anyone else. So that's a lot of preamble, but I think it's important to consider what the role of the commission is, why you ought to be taking a look at least at these the small section and really taking it to heart because it's surprising, as Joe Joe pointed out in his article a few years ago, how something that is pretty straightforward and not that lengthy has been skewed in the past. So with all that said, we had talked about the first four of the quote-unquote hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines for an effective compliance and ethics program last time. And we need to talk about the last three. And and again, through the prism of what's the minimum, what's the floor, what's the, 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 the bare expectation that we see in the sentencing guidelines for these different parts of a program. Hallmark number five is often titled monitoring and auditing. I think that that is good, but there there are a couple other important pieces of this puzzle that are buried in there that you don't get from the that short of a header, if you will. Part five A 
talks about the monitoring and auditing. And it actually just says that, you know, it says to ensure the organization's compliance and ethics program is followed, including monitoring and auditing to to detect criminal conduct. So taking reasonable, reasonable steps, including monitoring and auditing, really, is what it boils down to. Monitoring and auditing is really broad. And as I mentioned last time, there are application notes that sometimes add some color or flavor that need to be read along with the guideline itself. But there are also uh, situations, as we have here with Hallmark number 5 on monitoring and auditing, where the commission has thus far been silent. That doesn't mean that they're always going to be silent. Uh, As I mentioned before, in 2010, that's the last time that the guidelines were amended and and included some, some changes. It's entirely possible, and one of the things we'll be talking about in Las Vegas, by the way, is that the organizational guidelines might be amended in the future. It's not on the priorities for the Sentencing Commission this year in 2017, but that doesn't mean that it won't show up in the future or or that it won't be addressed in some way. Uh, So you have to, you know, kind of keep your eye on changes. But right now, we're left with just monitoring and auditing. And, And again, I think, again, we talked about last time how, depending on your size and sophistication, you look at these requirements through that prism. So monitoring and auditing for Wells Fargo is a very different thing than monitoring and auditing for a widget manufacturer with 20 employees that's purely domestic. So so it's going to vary. This is one of those areas that's really going to vary significantly in the sophistication, resources put brought to bear, etc. I don't want to go into it too deeply here because then we'll get off track and we'll get to the other <laughs> hallmarks, but there's not any specific guidance within the guidelines on what monitoring and auditing will be. There's lots of commentary and thought out there in the compliance community about what that means. The second part of this hallmark is to evaluate periodically the effectiveness of the organization's compliance and ethics program. Sometimes this gets lumped into the auditing piece or the monitoring piece or or just gets ignored completely. But this is important to actually evaluate the effectiveness. Now, it doesn't tell you how to do it. And again, there's no commentary on Hallmark number five to guide us as to what the commission had in mind. But it's, it's there in black and white that there has to be an evaluation periodically. Now, that might be an evaluation that you undertake internally. It might be an evaluation that you undertake with a third party or some combination thereof. But it has to be, it has to exist. There has to be an evaluation and it has to happen periodically. So it can't just happen once. Beyond that, the standards by which you're going to be measured effective or not around this hallmark are unclear. I think it's fair to say, if you look at benchmarking, that most organizations do have some sort of periodic process. I don't have the stats in front of me right now, but it's been changing over the last few years, and more and more organizations are working with third parties to conduct the evaluation. I have other podcasts on this, so I'm, again, not going to spend a lot of time on the specific topic. If you go back through, the, you can find a couple of the podcasts where I've talked about doing assessments and what goes into an assessment, how to scope it you know, when and why you might bring bring in a third party. So please check those out. But just know that if you're looking at the bare minimum, <laughs> and you shouldn't be, if you're looking at, you know, what the foundation is, then you need to consider periodic evaluation of the program as well. And then the last piece is something that does actually get a lot of play out there and, and is sort of a well-known piece of the puzzle. But I think, as you'll see here in a minute, perhaps misunderstood. The last is to publicize a system 
which may include mechanisms that allow for anonymity or confidentiality, whereby the organization's employees and agents can report or seek guidance regarding potential or actual criminal conduct without fear of retaliation. Okay, that's a mouthful, but basically what it's saying is you have to have some sort of reporting system. It doesn't say what that is, and you have to publicize it. And it may allow for anonymity and confidentiality. That's important. I think that, again, when we don't actually read the guidelines ourselves or, or, peer, or peer down into them, there's a common perception out there that you have to have a hotline that's anonymous. You don't. It says that it may include that. And it may be that that is a good way to meet the requirement uh, of a system that allows for people reporting without fear of retaliation. I think that's the, the assumption is, is that if you have an anonymous mechanism that's confidential, that's going to reduce people's fear of retaliation. Or, and, 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 you know, if it works, actual retaliation because they will be unknown. But it is a may, not a shall in the guidelines. That might be surprising to some of you because I think it's, this is one of those areas where people kind of take it as read that you have to have an anonymous mechanism. Now, it may be that best practices suggest that that is the way to go. Most organizations of size have an anonymous reporting mechanism. I think you would be outside the norm if you didn't. But just be aware, particularly if you're smaller and you're sort of asking that question that I mentioned at the top of both of these podcasts is what, what are the base requirements, the foundational requirements? Well, the foundational requirement is that you have a system and you publicize it, that you have a plan and you make sure people know about it. But beyond that, you don't necessarily have to go out and get an anonymous mechanism. And there are ways to have anonymous or, or mostly anonymous and confidential reporting without engaging expensive resources and systems too. So you're not out of the game if you don't have the resources. But that's hallmark number five. I think one of the, you know, there are only seven, so we can't have a top five, but maybe top three misunderstood <laughs> guidelines. I think that's mostly because we just call it monitoring and auditing, and we don't really talk about some of the nuance that's specific to it. Hallmark number six. This hallmark has a couple of pieces that often don't get a lot of discussion. One that's come of age in the last few years, but still I think is not appropriately understood. I'm just going to read it and then we'll talk about it. Hallmark number six is the organization's compliance and ethics program shall be promoted and enforced consistently throughout the organization through A, appropriate incentives to perform in accordance with the compliance and ethics program, and B, appropriate disciplinary measures for engaging in criminal conduct and for failing to take reasonable steps to prevent or detect criminal conduct. So that's punishment for both the actors and the people who allowed it to happen, i.e. management. This last part, we'll start from the last and go back. And go back. The last part is the piece that most organizations get and get it pretty effectively because it's been around forever and that's discipline. But you have to merge this last part with the first part, which is consistent enforcement. This is where perhaps some organizations don't come out as well. And it's important to note that this is part of the hallmark, is that not only that you have a disciplinary program, but that it be consistent and that it be promoted. This is another one that's often missed. When you look at reasons why people don't report misconduct that they observe, for example, the number one overwhelming reason that we all know is retaliation. But a close second in many organizations is what's often called a lack of organizational justice or a fear 
that uh, the company won't do anything or, or knowledge, that, a cynical knowledge that the company won't do anything. A lot of that can be cured by publicizing what happens when things don't go as to plan, what the disciplinary policy is, how consistent it is. And this also comes up oftentimes where compliance kind of butts heads a little bit with HR and outside counsel about giving details around issues that have come up. Labor counsel, oftentimes, employment counsel rather, sometimes loathe to have too many details about something that has happened, particularly if that something has led to somebody being no longer with the organization. There is a belt and suspenders approach about keeping things confidential, which I think, you know, you can't have a blanket rule one way or the other, but you need to re-examine how you lock down information about what's happened in the past and how the companies handle disciplinary matters. Number one, because it's going to make your program more effective. Number two, it's going to cause people to have a higher opinion about the organizational justice in in the company and be more likely to come forward. That's important. And number three, it's here in the guidelines that you need to promote and be consistent. So it's not just a matter of being consistent, but doing it under the shroud of secrecy and confidentiality. It's about promoting the program and include and that and part of the program is the disciplinary process, I would argue. You know, and, and in particular when you look at Hallmark six, it's talking about discipline and incentives. And we'll talk about incentives in a second, specifically when it says promote and be consistent. So I think if you need some ammunition to kind of at least start the conversation with HR and HR's support and counsel about bringing more details around disciplinary actions out into the public and using those in your communication effort, uh, you can point to this about the, the need to promote and enforce consistently and being able to demonstrate that. How do you demonstrate that you're enforcing the rules if you can't talk about it? I, I mean, I think it's a real question. Now, you may go through that exercise and determine that they're right and that certain things can't, certain things about the incident can't be released or the whole incident itself can't be released for whatever reason, maybe that's the case. But I think you at least investigate it. You don't just take it as read. You know, that makes the job of employment counsel way too easy. And they need a little bit of a challenge occasionally about, about the decisions that are being made around confidentiality on these things. The second piece of the puzzle here, obviously, is incentives. And this is something that's gotten a lot more attention over the last few years, but still is not really well implemented in the majority of organizations. Incentive is not keeping your job. Incentive is not getting in, you know, not getting in trouble because you follow the rules. An incentive is something proactive. These can be, and and I think I again, there's a podcast or two out there where I've discussed this before, and I might do a whole episode on incentives in the future. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. But but examples like making a component of being proactive and, and being engaged in the compliance program part of the manager's bonus. I mean, that's probably the more common one we've seen in the last few years is making it part, make, making sure that the managers have some skin in the game. And that dovetails with the notion of getting them involved in the process and communication and other efforts. So, so when you talk about incentives, they have to be real incentives and not just you know, keeping your job. That's not an incentive. A last thing here, too, is the incentives have to be related to the compliance program. Appropriate incentives to perform in accordance with the compliance and ethics program. So incentives that don't relate to compliance and ethics are not going to satisfy this hallmark. So 
we've gotten through six. We have one more hallmark, again, through the prism of what are the sort of minimum standards that are required by the, the sentencing guideline hallmarks. The last one is a one, again, that is probably not as well trafficked or known. And, in, and again, in some of the breakdown of seven hallmarks, this one is sometimes subsumed in other hallmarks or not even mentioned at all. And that is this last one talks about after criminal conduct has been detected. Now, you have to remember when talking about the sentencing guidelines, the sentencing guidelines do not apply legally unless there is a conviction and a federal district court judge is applying Chapter 8 to sentence an organization. The guidelines exist as standards that are, I guess guess the best way to describe it is technically not legally binding, but expected by everybody, uh, all stakeholders and all regulators. So you often will see within the context of the sentencing guidelines a discussion about criminal conduct. I think it's important when you read this, and, and as I said, I think you should read this, to, to also understand that if this is the floor and we're talking about criminal conduct, best practices is going to include misconduct that doesn't rise to the level of criminality. So although, again, we're talking about the floor here, we're talking about the bedrock, we're talking about the foundation, and that's going to be criminal conduct, that's going to be the, the, the bare basics of what the guidelines have to say here. But when you read criminal conduct, understand that the best practice is going to include misconduct, violation of your policies, rules, and procedures. So after criminal conduct has been detected, the organization shall take reasonable steps to respond appropriately to the conduct, prevent future conduct, including making any necessary modifications to the compliance and ethics program. So this, what this is suggesting is that when you have an issue, in the case of the guideline standard, that would be criminal conduct, but when you have an issue with your program, you need to address that issue, respond to it appropriately, whatever that might be. And we'll talk a little bit here. There's some application note guidance here. And then you need to prevent it in the future and you need to make modifications to the program based on that issue. This has been reinforced. If you go back and listen to my discussion about the fraud section of the DOJ memo from February, this particular issue has been reinforced again about what to do in these circumstances. As I said, there, there's, there's some guidance in the application notes that I think is particularly helpful when you're talking about what to do in this circumstance. When responding appropriately to the conduct, you take reasonable steps as warranted under the circumstances to remedy the harm, and those may include restitution and other forms of remediation. This is, again, in the context of a criminal violation. And other reasonable steps may include self-reporting and cooperation with authorities. So what this is saying, and this is an interesting little piece, is although, we're again, the guidelines are only going to be applied once there's a case, once an organization has pled guilty and is, or has been found guilty and is in front of a federal judge. But for the purpose of deciding under these standards whether the organization has responded appropriately, and this is a nuance that's within a lot of guidance from the Department of Justice as well, is this notion that you need to come forward and cooperate. And again, these are all standards that make a quote-unquote effective program. So it's arguable if an organization uncovered criminal conduct, 
even if they engaged in restitution and some of these other activities, if they didn't self-report and cooperate, there's a may here. It's not a shall. They may be outside the guideline standards. So keep that in mind. That last sentence is important. May include self-reporting and cooperation with authorities. The second thing, which is probably more of interest to those of us for organizations, whether there's criminal conduct or not, is uh, acting appropriately to prevent future conduct of that type. The steps should be consistent with what we discussed before about monitoring and auditing and program review. And interestingly here, unlike in the guideline itself when it talks about periodic review, it says that this may include the use of an outside professional advisor to ensure adequate assessment and implementation of any modifications. So it's important to note that if there's been a ser- serious issue, and certainly an issue, certainly in a, a, a situation where the issue rises to criminal car- conduct or arguably criminal conduct, the uh, Sentencing Commission is suggesting that the follow-up to that may, may include an outside professional advisor. There's no definition of what an outside professional advisor might be. That could be a lawyer. That could be a compliance professional. That could be somebody who has specific knowledge about perhaps the particular kind of misconduct that happened. That is something also to keep in mind when you're looking at this last hallmark. That there's an expectation if the wheels sort of really come off, you probably should be considering looking outside the organization for assistance. The last thing I want to talk about is not one of the hallmarks, but it is the section that immediately precedes the hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines in 8B2.1. And it is 8B2.1C. And it states that when you're implementing subsection B, which is these seven hallmarks we've talked about for the last two episodes. The organizations shall periodically assess the risk of criminal conduct and shall take appropriate steps to design, implement, or modify each requirement set forth in this subsection to reduce the risk of criminal conduct as identified through this process. Okay, so we just got finished talking about if, if the wheels come off, you have to do a serious look back. And we talked about how one of the sentencing guidelines, which is often called monitoring and auditing, but also includes very specifically doing a periodic review. And now we have a whole entire subsection separate and apart that talks about implementing the entire thing and talks about the importance of periodically assessing risk. And that dovetails also with a lot of the other thing guidance we've, we've heard over the last few years from the department and elsewhere about assessing risk. So if you weren't sure before <laughs> that the sentencing guideline standards for an effective program and all the other guidance that you're hearing suggests that you be assessing your risk and taking appropriate steps to redesign or design parts of your program, here it is in black and white. You cannot have a static program. That's the takeaway here. And that's important to understand. But that's it. We've gone through, in in excruciating detail, (laughs) 8B2.1 in a podcast and a half, because I talked about a couple other things before we started talking about these hallmarks last time. And so, again, it's going to be in the show notes. I want you, please, if you don't listen to anything else I say uh, on this podcast, at least take a few minutes to review the actual text of the guidelines. Because, again, this is what we all base our program on. This is the still the gold standard. I had a podcast a few weeks ago about whether the guidelines still matter, and I think the answer is a resounding yes, they still matter. Well, if they matter, then we should know them. And uh, I encourage you to take the time to know them. 
Until next time, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.